This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In most of the prior episodes of this podcast, I summarized, criticized, discussed, and reviewed single issues from my comic book collection, which I often selected at random. Any book for my comic book collection was eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. We asked if it was worth 25 cents, or a bargain at 25 cents, or still overpriced. And you stayed tuned and found out. But for this 100th episode of The Quarter Bin, or I should say for the 6th and final part of the 100th episode of The Quarter Bin Podcast, we are again going big. Because over these six supersized parts, we are covering 100 comics. As I've explained before, these 100 books came from a pair of 50-issue grab bags I bought at $7 each. That's right, 100 comics at 14 cents a piece. Obviously, the reviews of these issues will be quite brief, and I will be joined by guests for as many of the issues as I can possibly schedule. And now, since we only have 10 issues in this episode instead of 17, 18, or 19, it's time for the episode 100 mail call. Just first, I want to thank everyone for the positive comments about the episode and all the congratulations on reaching number 100. Thank you all. Uh, Just to pick and choose a few comments regarding part one, Chris Ivey said we were off to a good start. Mark Sweeney wished us 100 more. I was Joe, said he loved the episode, and Dr. Ange called it a super spectacular opening. And that is a great grab bag so far. Strangers in Paradise, Legionnaires, Superman. Great job by all. And the generous Canadian Rob Lance said he was already anticipating the next episodes. And of course, everyone loved the cameo surprise appearance by the true stars of the Adams household, Charlotte and Catherine, Catherine and Charlotte. Highlight of the episode. Many of the participants commented on the editing of the episode. Mark Adams summed it up. Wow, I sounded good. Alan, you are the Gandalf of editing. And Chad Bokelman, who had to wait more than six months between recording his segment and hearing his segment, said, I've utterly forgotten everything about the recording session except which issues we talked about. So this will be interesting. Happy 100, Alan. Specifically, on part one, our friend Vera Wild said that it was super fun. I could listen to Mark Adams' voice all day. Seriously, can I hire him to read me the headlines in the mornings while I have my first cup of tea? The Sutherlands said the episode was a nice treat for a Friday. And the remedial shag commented on part one as well, absolutely loving your issue 100 celebration. Clever format and the bite-sized reviews are perfect. Also, lovely to hear so many different excellent podcasters. And hooray for Justice League Europe. Can't wait to listen to subsequent installments. And David Ace Gutierrez reported that he was on Skype right then waiting for his call. And in about 20 minutes, you'll hear that his patience really paid off. Sir Martin of Grey wrote in with, as he put it, birthday greetings. 
such an imaginative way of celebrating. I love the sheer variety of comics and voices on this episode, and of course, your own mellifluous tones. I've not read many of the books discussed, but the talk made it easy to imagine. My big takeaway is that I really do need to get around to reading Quasar. Then it was all worth it for Gene Hendricks to appear. My other takeaway is that other people are a heck of a lot better than myself at being pithy. Of the comics I have read, Martin continues, my favorite is the Superman Christmas issue. I reviewed it on the blog a couple of years back. That issue could melt the coldest Arctic fortress. I considered coming up with some kind of ranking or rating of the hundred books from the episode, but I decided against it. But if I had, then yes, that Christmas issue would definitely be near, or maybe at, the top of the list. Martin goes on saying that despite the high level of craft, his least favorite was Hawkworld. Tim Truman's take squeezed all the charm out of one of my favorite series, and boy, those non-feathery wings were ugly as sin. The only DC character to suffer a worse fate around this time was Adam Strange in the Richard Bruning Hubert Brothers miniseries. And yes, faithful listeners with good memories of the quarter bin will know that we covered those issues here way back in episode 15, 18, and 21. And yes, what was done to Adam Strange was pretty unforgivable. Please tell me this party is continued next week. And as a matter of fact, it was continued next week. And as a matter of fact, Martin Gray responded again, first asking if it was okay to comment before finishing the entirety of the episode. I love hearing some Power of the Atom talk. That comic was a joy to me after Sword of the Atom. Now, if you remember, that is exactly 180 degrees of my view of those series. But Martin does a good job defending his ideas. The latter was good for what it was. I mean, it had Gil Kane art. How could the specials be bad? But what it was was a book predicated on a couple... We'd waited nearly two decades to marry, splitting up. And then Ray runs away and becomes a tiny Conan with a loincloth over his costume. What's the point of a size-changing hero when everyone else is the same size? Sword was an interesting diversion, but Ray doesn't belong in some daft jungle permanently. He should be in Ivy Town as a science superhero. Roger Stern brought a real freshness to the character and power, tweaking his abilities and enriching his supporting cast while sending him on rollicking adventures. Best Adam book, bar the original. Easy. I replied to him that honestly, to me, the Adam is one of the Silver Age characters that may not work in current day. Unfortunately, this category probably includes the Challengers of the Unknown and the aforementioned Adam Strange as well. Again, for me, Sword of the Adam was a necessary change of pace, the shake-up that was needed. And I'll be honest, I love Sword and Sorcery, and this was one of the earliest series M ever read, so I am totally biased in favor of it. Martin replied again a little bit later about my conversation with Bob Fisher. I'm so glad to hear some love for the Kurt Busiak Superman run. I adored it, especially the Insect Queen story. Especially nice was that he didn't limit Clark to the invulnerability strength, heat vision, flight power set. Remembering, for instance, that Clark has microscopic vision as well. On the music for that second part, the song Byzantium by Jeff Johnson, 
Martin commented that it seemed a bit mournful. That obviously was not what I was going for, so I made sure to clear the music for part three, songs from David Zafiro by Martin first, and he was a good sport about it and gave those songs a thumbs up. I did get a message from Ben Avery early in his listening to part two, because he immediately recognized the song by Jeff Johnson. Podcasting's Michael Bailey, a fan of music and musicals, approved of the song choices for part three. It had a nice 80s feel and worked for the episode, especially the eras that you are discussing. On that episode, Greg Arujo, the great Kansan, again commented on my editing prowess. But of course, when you have such good content to work with, editing is pretty easy. Chris Willette reported that, like Bob Fisher, appearing on the quarter bin was something he'd wanted to do for a long time. Dr. Ange thanked me for letting him talk about Millennium. Poor Dr. Ange. And as you heard in Part 5, that was not the end of Ange's bad luck. I love how Chris Ivey described the episode. It's like a who's who of comic book podcasting. Back to Dr. Ange, he described the episode as great friends talking comics in a machine gun style. Again, Greg asked if I was gearing up to start recording episode 150 anytime soon. No, 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 no. Pat from the Long Box Crusade said it was an awesome way to celebrate 100 episodes. The guest hosts were great and Professor Alan rocks. I agree with some of that, Pat. Podcasting's Michael Bailey again on the content of Part 3. Listening to Alan Middleton and Gene Hendricks talk about a book from London Knight's studio sparked a memory from the summer of 1996 when I would help Briggs Willis sort the new books at his comic shop. Some of the clientele would order London Knight books and some of them would order the nude variants. On that same episode, Nathaniel Wayne and I talked about Nomad, and there was a Man-Thing appearance, and I commented that the book could be worth a quarter, but only for a Man-Thing completionist, a phrase that Nathaniel assumed was merely hypothetical. But Ben Avery, a fan of all things swampy, wrote in to say that no, he knows of one Man-Thing completionist. Knows him very well. For all of his life, as a matter of fact. Paul Heeks of the Waiting for Doom podcast said on that episode that he was always happy to hear about Legion, insert the dots yourself, and that it was cool to hear Laurel added to the mix. And many people jumped in to congratulate Laurel for her impressive podcast debut. And anyone else who liked hearing her, let me just say, stay tuned. Mark Sweeney of I'm the Gun also commented on that Legion segment with Martin Gray, just the right kick in the pants I need to begin a plan to reread of Rebels 94. And of course, poor Gene Hendricks commented that he was glad to hear about the books everyone else on the episode covered. I mentioned a few minutes ago that the Superman Christmas story would be very close to the top of the list for all the books I covered in episode 100. But that book that poor Gene and I covered in part three, fittingly called Torture, may have been the worst. There were a few weird Skype recording things in that episode, 
Nathaniel Wayne talked about his voice becoming a dog whistle at one point, and Chris Ivey thought that his voice at one point was coming through a mother box. I was Joe reported that he was glad to hear Mr. Miracle and Cloak and Dagger discussed, and that Ed and me really sold him on trying Warp again after just having read a random issue years ago. Robert Ward said it was good to hear from Michael Bradley again. He was the first comics podcaster I started listening to, and I kind of miss him. We all do, Robert. And I hope you enjoyed his appearance in Part 4 as well. On Part 4, the generous Canadian, Rob Lance, expressed a reasonable concern. Great episode. However, I just heard you mention that I'd be appearing on an episode with Shag. I thought you liked me. I thought we had a deal. Well, as it turns out, Rob, you didn't have to face that situation. That would have been tough on you, definitely. But I do have some sway with Shag's representatives, otherwise known as his probation officers. So I'm glad that that worked out for you. Aaron Henley promoted that part with this line. Check out the official Latverian ambassador and the best in the podcasting industry talk about cheap comics. Good? Bad? We'll find out. The extremely supportive Martin Gray reported that he couldn't wait to listen to part four. A few minutes later, he said he would have gladly reviewed XSE with me. That's the one that I covered on my own, being as he put it about himself. I'm a comic book tart. In another time, in another dimension, you did appear on that episode, Martin. You have my word on it. But we did disappoint Dr. Ange mightily in part four. I was Joe, and I talked about an issue of Nightwatch that included a surprise appearance by Cardiacs. Well, the doctor rushed to his Marvel card sets to get info about these two dudes, only to find out that he was thinking of Death Watch and Cardiac. So close, and so close. I did point out that those two would have been major upgrades over the guys that we actually did talk about. I was Joe confessed that that's who he thought we would be talking about as well. So, poor cardiacs. Lost to the mists of time. Joe also did a little investigating, and he discovered that if the two of us really want to go out and start this cardiacs cast, an index show covering all of that character's appearances, it would be a two-episode show, and we've pretty much already done the first one. At some point, the great Kans and Gregorujo posted some comic panels, and Laurel Mountainflower jumped right in. Hey, that's the Shroud! I covered number two of his mini on the Quarterbin podcast. See, it was a learning experience. <laughs> Back to music, Natalie McMaster's Fiddle Playing got podcasting's Michael Bailey in a particular mood. The music at the beginning of this episode led me to believe that Alan was going to read a letter to his wife in a southern accent, talking about how he misses her and will be home as soon as he's done editing the episode. Before episode 5 even came out, just based on the announcement of who would be appearing, mostly Shag and Stella, Tom Panarese rendered his judgment. Worst episode ever. 
Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong, but the least he could have done was listen to the episode first. While he was listening to episode five, I was Joe, reported in. I have to say, that Nicholas Prom kid has a future in podcasting. Good job, guys. And Gene Hendricks, of course, responded to the presence of Quasar in the Alpha Flight book as an Avenger. Yes, the era where Quasar was an Avenger is my favorite period of that book, followed closely by the Leather Jacket era. Bold statements, Gene. Bold statements. Pat Sampson reported that he was glad to have appeared on a podcast episode with Shag. The general consensus was that as a first-timer with Shag, even though they didn't appear together, that he should still probably be tested. Dr. Ange volunteered his services. The list of people who retweeted or shared any of these episodes is too long. But to anyone who did that, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I appreciate all the guests saying what a nice thing it was for me to invite them on the show. But the nice thing was all of them appearing on the show. That was the gift. Well, that brings us to our last batch of books for the entire episode 100. So let's get right to this right now. And first up, we're headed back to the late Bronze Age. Books 91 through 93 are Atari Force 10, 11, and 12 from DC Comics. Cover dated October, November, and December 1984. And joining me in this time machine is another fine comics podcaster from the Plains States. That's where all <laughs> the cool kids hang out. It's Ben Avery. Welcome to the quarter bin. I'm so glad to be here. I parked my time machine just outside the quarter bin, and <laughs> the quarter bin is a lot bigger on the inside than it was on the outside, so that's, that's a good thing. But... Early to mid-80s. Yeah. How was little Benji Avery doing in his comic book collecting <laughs> back then? Little Benji Avery, this was 84, he was 10, and he was basically just getting random issues here and there of things that his mom thought he wanted. And, and she was always right. She ne- There was never a stinker. Um, but I only I, I just had a few comics. It was not a big comic collection, but it was well, well read. And this is just about the time where I started getting a real allowance and was able to like buy my own Superman comic that I chose. You know, my Empowerment. own. Yeah, it was <laughs> very big, big time in my life. Just that ten year old time period. And but these comics I never, never saw. I knew of them because they were advertised in some Star Trek comics. But Atari Force. I only knew about because of the pack-in comics that came with the cartridges with your Atari games. Oh, that's right. So how heavy into the, the gaming system? Mm-hmm. So I had the one that came with Defenders, and I had the one that came with Berserk, and I had the one that came with Star Raiders. But I did not have the ones uh, that came with, uh, I think it's Galaxia or Galaga or one of those. And um, the other one came with Phoenix, I think, or something like that. But um, I only had three of the five, and again, Red over and over and over again and basically what we've got right here with these issues 
the monthly issues is a next generation story. That's what actually caused me to buy the run that I have is I always wanted to know, like, what is this comic book? And so I finally bought them and uh, wanted to know what happened. And I was a little disappointed when I started reading and realized the main characters were children of the characters yeah, right. that I really loved. And Did our so. friend eBay help you get those other two mini comics? Our friend eBay did help me, but <laughs> our friend eBay didn't need to help me because they actually have uh, Dynamite is doing a reprint of those five mini comics in a mini graphic novel. All you needed was a couple decades of patience. <laughs> yeah. Which 10 year olds are just full of. You know, 10 year old Benji didn't care. He was just, he wasn't Benji, by the way. When, when I was 10, I, I decided I'm not Benji. Because I, I, I came home one day in third grade and said, Mom, Dad, I'm not Benji anymore. I'm Ben. Because the kids kept calling me Benji the dog. If you grew up around that time, you know exactly that you know, he was – that was a big thing, Benji the dog was. Well then, Ben, <laughs> let's look at these issues. And because these are three consecutive parts of a longer arc, I'm just going to run the summaries for 10 and 11 and 12 together. The titles are in order, Home is the Hero, Betrayal, and Revelations. And it is possible that the name of that middle one is kind of a spoiler. Not possible. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does say on the cover, yeah. my blackjack betrayed. So, okay. <laughs> they did not do a very good job of hiding the spoilers in this series. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, All of these are written by Jerry Conway with pencils by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Inks and various issues were by Bob Smith and Eduardo Barreto. And editor Andy Helfer has a scripting credit in issue 10. So with security forces and hot pursuit, Tempest attempts to learn about the Dark Destroyer. Blackjack returns, spends some quality time with Dart, and explains his side of the story, why he disappeared many issues back. Christopher Champion, a.k.a. Tempest, son of the original team leader and little Ben's hero, Martin Champion, <laughs> is the target of security forces. But it's not all a happy reunion with Blackjack, and we do have to point out that Blackjack is, of course, spelled E-L-A-C-K-J-A-K, -A -A because that's cool. It's cool in sci-fi. <laughs> so Blackjack betrays the Atari force to the Dark Destroyer. He and Dart have a knockdown, drag out over his actions. Christopher is brought before the High Council on the charge of treason. The Dark Destroyer ship lands. And Martin, the dad, leads the force to meet them. But before they battle, the Destroyer reveals who he is under the metal mask. And he is, dramatic swell of music, Martin Champion. Da, da, da. So nice, dramatic sci-fi reveal there at the end. Yeah. What do we think of these ones, Ben? Okay, the Blackjack death earlier was actually kind of impactful. Not really impactful, but kind of. And so his return is just one of those things where, you know, I can accept it when it's like Coulson because I love Coulson. <laughs> uh, but in this situation, it's just kind of, ah, oh, that, uh. Because Dart and him, I mean, they were a thing, and it was actual loss for her. Now, it still is, because he is not completely right, yeah. But all things considered, I mean, it's a 13-issue 
apparently 13 issue. I have not read issue 13. I stopped after 12. I read up to 12. I had read earlier ones before, but these this was actually the first time I've read um, 10, 11, and 12. And so I've stopped. I do not know what happens in issue 13, but it sounds like they're saying issue 13 is the end of this first story arc. And then we'll move on to some other stuff potentially after that. The artwork, you, you, it can't be beat. Oh, the, no. I mean, it's it's just beautiful. It's a, definitely got that uh, 80s sci-fi comics vibe. I mean, it's being influenced by Star Wars, but it's not being influenced in the same way that things are today. And Dark Destroyer, obviously, is kind of a Darth Vader mm-hmm. kind of bad guy, but he has a really cool look. And then, I mean, other than I Am Your Father, you know... <laughs> What kind I, of I what kind you. of yeah. yeah and I in full disclosure I've done that story in mm-hmm. in a time travel series that I wrote graphic novel series I did that reveal and I thought it was like oh this will be really neat really clever really original apparently not as original as I thought but, <laughs> okay, but look it, it still fit the same, story you're yeah. on the same wavelength of as Jerry Conway I, I'm yeah. giving you props for that yeah. I don't know how it is him. I'm really curious. I'm really, really curious, but I've held off from reading it. So Now, I will warn you, warn listeners, that Garcia Lopez leaves after issue 12. Yeah. So whatever you get in issue 13, it's going to look a lot different, and odds are not nearly as good. Yeah. yeah I like my sci-fi comic books. But it seems that with the Star Wars and Star Trek exceptions, at least at the big two, I'm not sure they really don't seem to catch on. I'm thinking of back in this era, things like Spanner's Galaxy. I think that was another one, Sun Devils. These attempts that DC had to sort of cash in on that non-licensed sci-fi right. property. Yeah, and this only went, I think it went through issue 24. Yeah, 20 or 24, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and then it they did a special, yeah, the, I think, to burn off some of the backup stories, which you didn't mention that issue 12 has this completely unintelligible backup story. I don't know what's going on. That is it, Keith Giffen at his most Keith Giffen-ish. From, <laughs> a, from a writing perspective, let me ask you this. Yeah. They came up, you know, about seven pages short. I mean, I, I assume that's what happened. You know, they had this reveal which theoretically could have been page 22, and it's page whatever, 14 or 15. Would you rather them have the seven pages of filler in the main story to place the dramatic reveal where it should be? No. Or would you rather (laughs) them have an unintelligible, dumb backup story? I mean, there's no right answer to that. (laughs) Here's the right answer. I'd rather have a backup story that you can actually follow. Right. Okay. (laughs) Okay, that would be choice C, I admit. Yeah. You know, you can, you can keep that there's no right answer mentality if you want on this, but... Uh. <laughs> I do wonder at, at what point in the process, or whether it was the plan all along, you know, or whether Conway realized, this is going to end way too early. Yeah, I don't know, because that, that reveal, that cliffhanger reveal... I mean, that it, has to be the end of the issue. Yeah, there is no way you go further than that in the story. I mean, I guess with the whole um, Tempest being chased, they could have added a little bit more of that stuff, but they had to end it there. That was yeah, that was for sure. It, that was definitely a strange read, in in, <laughs> in that sense. They do backup stories in other issues as well. 
I haven't read them, but I, I know this because I've looked at some of the credits as I was planning some stuff. And there's there's backup stories and other other issues. And in one way, it allows you to do world building. I mean, I, I love right. short backup stories. And I actually convinced a publisher on a, one of my series to do short backup stories in every issue of, of a series and explore other characters. And, and he loved the idea. It can yeah. work. It's just this one was not a good one, in my opinion. You did mention a read-through of Atari Force. I understand there might be a little Atari f- podcasting in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, There's the Atari Force series. There's the series that they did um, with, the, with the cartridges. But then they also did a graphic novel called Star Raiders. It's part of this universe. They did a graphic novel. You know, these are the big oversized graphic novels that are mm-hmm. really thin. But and they had like a four ninety five cover price or something. But they did one with Warlords, and then they also had um, the Sword Quest series that, that DC did. That was also some pack in comics. And I'm I've got them all, and I'm just thinking, hmm. And I've been thinking for a long time <laughs> of what this would look like. And I finally feel like I know what I want to do. I know the kind of style I would take with it. And, yeah, it, it's going to be something I'll be doing on Comic Book Time Machine at mm-hmm. some point. And everything with Comic Book Time Machine is kind of done solo. Even though I have co-hosts, right. we all co-host our own episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't know, the idea of doing it alone. But I've got a, an idea of bringing in my kids for some parts of it. So, oh, great. Yeah. Now, one yeah. question you're not going to ask over there. So it's copyrighted here. Yeah. And that is, do you think these books are worth a quarter? I have a two-part answer. Um, and, and the answer to both parts of my answer are, are is yes. I would say if you're buying 1 through 12 in the quarter bins, absolutely. it's an absolute yes. Do it. Don't even think about it. Do it. Get issue 13. It might be a letdown, but the, the journey is pretty good. If you're just getting these three issues, the answer is still yes, but it's not as emphatic. It's a yes because it's still good and the artwork is beautiful. It is kind of cool to have long-form storytelling before writing for the trade was a thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, to have this 13-part epic. Well, and that's the thing is you missed out on nine issues of build-up. Mm, right to get to get to issue 10 so the the blackjack reveal is a thing you know and you mm-hmm. see you see them on some adventures together as soldiers of fortune dart and temp uh, dart dart and blackjack rather and and then the whole thing with uh tempest and his father there's a whole big conflict and stuff i mean it's build up it's written that way intentionally you know it, it's not right. just here's an issue here's an issue here's an issue oh they all kind of go together and beginning middle end beginning middle end but the best one for me is um, like Marvel 2-in-1, where the thing would be bouncing around from hero team up to hero mm, team up. Right. But there's still kind of thread in there mm-hmm. that they would kind of seed and just kind of plant it. This is written chapter, 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 and they call them chapter 1, chapter right. 2, chapter 3. Yeah, It's a steal. I mean, you, you're getting <laughs> it's, it's 66% off. Is that right? Exactly. It's a, and, it's a deep discount. <laughs> <laughs> and like we said, JLGL leaves after issue 12. But if you can you know, nab a run from these first 12 and you know, throw in 13 to get the end of the story, I suppose. But especially those first 12 when the art is top notch, I say give it a shot, definitely. Solid yeah. stuff. Yep. Well, thanks for joining me, Ben. It is good to have you on the show. I appreciate finally getting to, to talk to you again. We've 
talked in the past on something else that wasn't either of our shows. <laughs> wasn't that crossover event thing? That we, yeah. That was a while ago. Yeah. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Next up, more abbreviations. Book 94, R-E-B-E-L-S, 95, number 3. From DC Comics, cover date of January 1995. And to talk with me about this one, direct from an alternate universe, where the <laughs> Ultraverse Podcast Network is still going strong, it's David Ace Gutierrez. Thank you for having me, Alan. Welcome to the Quarterbin. This book we're going to look at is from the heart of the 1990s. Where were you comic book reading wise during this dark period? I got out of comics for a couple of years. And then in 95, I discovered the Ultraverse. Started getting titles here and there. It was also kind of the first time that I saw a lot of, you'd appreciate this, uh, discount boxes. Yes. Although pretty expensive because they were maybe a dollar. So I was I was collecting again. I can't even tell you the first DC comics I got that restarted everything were um, Birds of Prey that one shot mm, by Gary right. Frank and and Chuck Dixon because I'm a huge Howard Chaykin fan. There was this um, Elseworlds comic called Dark Allegiance or Allegiance oh, nice. that okay. he had done, and that was expensive because that was like a whopping three ninety five. I know. I, I whoa, don't, please whoa, don't see. That. You okay? So I was I was getting back into it, but Rebels wasn't anything that I had um, probably up until, <laughs> until you sent me. About the three months ago when we were pre- preparing for this? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd ever glanced at more than once. And I think this is maybe the second Rebels comic I, I, I quote-unquote own. I, <laughs> I, bought, I bought the Zero Hour ones when right. those came out. Well, Rebels, of course, is the revolutionary elite brigade to eradicate L-E-G-I-O-N supremacy because right. it's acceptable for one of the letters in your acronym to actually be another acronym? Well, as D-A-V-I-D and then the <laughs> I in my name, it's an acrostic. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it either. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Because it's really – it's the Rebel Legions. Rebel Legions. <laughs> yeah. I read a couple of issues of Legion when it spun off of Invasion because I was really curious right. about it. But uh, that was more of the – that was an expensive comic, Alan, as you'll recall, because it was on Baxter paper. Um, well, but, let's, uh, talk, let's talk a yeah. little bit about, about this story. I've got a brief synopsis for us. This is Brains, written by Tom Pyre with art by Derek Alcoin and Mark Probst. And we have Vril Dox, a green-skinned brainiac type of fella. He's surrounded by bad guys who are glad they have captured the head of – Legion, not knowing that he has been ousted by his power-mad son, Lyril Dox. Not dissimilar to the way that Emily has taken over the Relatively <laughs> Geeky Podcast Network. That's just That was by charm, not by force, though. <laughs> Very different. And when Legion officers do show up, 
Docks goes up against them, survives, and escapes. As the officers head into Docks' ship, they wake up Lobo, and it does not go well for them. And they team up in a manner of speaking, although Docks seriously questions the wisdom of keeping Lobo around. Now, we said that maybe these Rebels books was not your jam, but how, <laughs> but how about the breakout character, Lobo? The JLI right. title, when he, when, he, when he would fight with Guy Gardner. So I, I met him there. It, it, he's always weird to me because he's a little bit like the joke that nobody got was a joke. Yeah, I was actually reading a book, I think probably from 90 or so, and there was a house ad for his debut miniseries, and they pitched it as the satire on over-the-top, ultra-violent characters that you've been demanding. So they knew what they had, they were pitching it that way, and it just morphed into something real. But the readers didn't know? But I guess, I mean, but that's how it was pitched, but I guess not. I don't know where, what we were doing in the 80s, what we were thinking, but like, uh, you know, characters like Wolverine, this guy Lobo. I, I'm pretty sure you've covered a nomad, right? Oh, From that yeah. era. Yeah. So you know that, that that TV show Renegade, how we were sort of in love with this really strange idea of hyper-masculinity. I uh, grew up next to this guy. Um, his name was Bobby, and he was a lot older than I was. So he, I would hear him tear down our street in the uh in his motorcycle so he was like 28 or 27 when i was about 12 or 13 and my best friend jay and i would always go walk past him working on his motorcycle in the garage and we just thought he was the coolest guy ever because he was always you know leather boots the jeans He was always working out but then you get old and you think wait this guy's 27 years old (laughs) all he does is work on his bike all day. There's no drive. And, and he was getting a beer gutter ready at 27. It's just weird that Lobo very much encapsulates what a 12-year-old thought was awesome back then. And maybe <laughs> that, that was probably the readership, right? That was, I mean... Yeah, I guess so, probably, yeah. Because I was right. And this was... Not Lobo's debut was in, like, my that wheelhouse for, this is cool. I need to cut all the sleeves off my shirts. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird... He's weird. Now, this is actually not a Lobo book specific. So broad thoughts on the issue as a whole. I found it a wee bit confusing. Yes. Well, it's just, yeah, it's all over the place. And the place is the galaxy. So it feels a little messy (laughs) at times. And I really don't have a good sense of who anyone is from the book. The first page was a recap page. Very strange for a DC (laughs) book. Was that in vogue at the time? I'm trying to remember. I I don't think so. But I don't know. If this, um, if this one, in, in terms of backstory and the number of characters, I, I was a wee little bit lost. Right. As long as we focused on Vrildox and Lobo, I was following it pretty well. But when the comedy. story went <laughs> elsewhere, yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's a bad book. I'm sorry, Alan. Let's make this official. The guest renders judgment first. R-E-B-E-L-S apostrophe 95 number three. Is this worth a Q-U-A-R-T-E-R question mark? No. I'm with you on that. It's it's a cheap way to get a Lobo appearance, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Then it delivers, but beyond that, not so much. There have to be Lobo completionists out there. <laughs> I'm not saying I'd want to hang out with them, but if there were, 
and this is worth a quarter. Well, thank you for having me on, man. I've been a fan of your shows for years, well, and I love, you, what you, I love what you and Emily do. I, I just it's very Emily. kind of you. Uh, well, thank you for joining me. And when we do maybe episode five hundred, yeah, may, maybe we'll you know let you pick a better book. Thank you. Next up, another, and I believe our final, trip to the X-World and adjacent communities. Book 95 is X-Factor 95. From Marvel Comics, cover dated October 1993. And joining me again is podcasting's Michael Bailey. Way at the very beginning, we talked about X-Force. So where does X-Factor fit into your comic book reading history from issue one to the to the end of the peter david run uh because i went on a kick years ago where i i read through all of the uh x books that i had uh and and for somehow i got my hands on like almost a full run of x factor super cheap and i it's one of those things where for most of its existence i really didn't care for it it really wasn't until Peter David took over the book that I enjoyed it because mm-hmm. he came on and turned the title from the original X-Men altogether to this team of kind of misfits all working for the government. Peter David did what Peter David always does is, is, is play with the dynamics. And there's one issue in particular where everyone sits down with Doc Sampson and you get into the, the heads of all the team members, and it's just amazing, which is why reading this was such a freaking letdown. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yes, this issue is not that issue. No, not at all. This is Fatal Repulsions by Scott Lobdell and J.M.D. Mateus with art by Greg Luzniak and Al Milgram. And in it, Random lures Polaris to a rooftop in the nation's capital for a secluded heart-to-heart. But instead of a conversation, he tries to, you know, kill her. Meanwhile, Havoc meets their new government liaison, Forge, and they perform a team assessment. Meanwhile, Random and Polaris are still fighting across Washington, D.C., with Polaris taking the interesting tactic of just continually destroying his poor car. And on the last page, the team gets a surprise visitor in the form of the hairy, clawed, slobbery... Are we going with Ron? Uh, or Rain? Rain. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, podcasting's Michael. Your thoughts? I hated Random. <laughs> I'm the guy that look at Youngblood and go, you know, there's potential here. Uh, and I'm looking at random and going, no, no, this is everything wrong with this era of the X-Men. Yeah. On one hand, it was neat to see Polaris kind of holding her own and not being a damsel in distress and, yeah, right. you know, you know, pummeling him with that car over and over again, which was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing between Forge and Havoc, it's almost like Forge was just being a jerk through the whole thing to test Havoc. 
and then the whole thing with rain coming in at the end and if i'm if i'm remembering this correctly she's in heat i'm not kidding about that i don't know if that was something peter david already established or was or if this is when they kind of pulled the trigger on that oh god the art on that last page is so awful <laughs> well I'm, I mean, looking, I'm looking at uh, page 6 and 7 it's a, it's one of those ones where you have to turn the the book the other way mm-hmm. to get the the two page spread going that way and there are a couple of uh, panels around it. But basically, you've got uh, your favorite guy, Random, here, right? Yeah. And he's got – how many buckles are those on his pants? Seven <laughs> on each leg. He's got tattoos and maybe actual wire, barbed wire on a bicep. Or maybe that's a tattoo also. Maybe it's bad that I can't tell. He's got a cigar. He's got stubble. He's got a cut-off leather jacket. Is that his hair? Or is that a brown ribbon coming off his back? I think it's part of a bandana. I think it's a bandana. And overly muscled arms. Those arms are so... Oh, man, there's nothing about this that I like. Look, you and me, we don't mind over the top. No, we don't. like meatloaf. But this, this is beyond the pale. I wanted to find something positive to say about this issue. There are multiple people, as I flip through this, whose legs make up about three-quarters of their body. Men, women, it doesn't matter. That is, That seems to be a common look, and it is not working. It's just kind of sad that this is, this is where this book is, has fallen to, essentially. J.M. DeMatteis couldn't save this, though. I give him credit for the beating him up with the car gag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over that, and over that, and over again. That seemed to me Demetrius. But when that is the highlight of the book, that's yeah, a I problem. Mean, I don't mind that I read it because it was a chance for you and I to get together and talk. So that, <laughs> well, that, if that's, that's a, the highlight, then that's even a bigger problem. <laughs> not a good issue. Setting aside that this did bring us together, is this worth a quarter? <sighs> No. That's a low bar, and I think you're right. It's not worth scraping together two dimes and a nickel. I own this issue. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be unloading it at some point, but let me tell you, this era of X-Factor, when I put it on eBay, it's almost going to be like a dollar, and you pay the shipping, and please get it out of my, my house. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I'm already trying to figure out where I can offload this one, now that the episode's just about over, so... Michael, I don't want you to be negative anymore, so I'm just going to thank you for joining me (laughs) and say it's always good to chat with you. Uh, Pleasure as always, sir. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you. Next up, no surprise, we're still in the 1990s. Book 96 is Dark Hawk number 9 from Marvel Comics, cover dated November 1991. And joining me again is J. David Weeder, but I'm going to call him Dave. As well you should. All my friends do, and I'm excited to be here for this one, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. Uh, So what is your history or your fandom with Dark Hawk? 
or the guest star of this issue, The Punisher. Actually, I was a big Darkhawk fan when he started coming out because he sprung from this period where Marvel decided to throw several brand new, fresh ideas on the table. Mm. Since they're in the 90s, they get bad reps. I love the concept of a a 20, you know, late 20th century, 90s type of Spider-Man character. And it ended up building a great mythology by the time this uh, 50 issue run was over. The Punisher I didn't get into until been a few years ago now, where I just happened upon an essential Punisher volume one. I'm like, yeah, for eight bucks a good reading and grew to really appreciate the character yeah i was mostly out of comics in the 90s and i joked that there's some really good advantages to that you dodged some bullets but i do recognize now hearing folks like you and other folks talk there were some good stuff in there that i missed too maybe dark hawk was one of those things i confess to not certainly not being familiar with i'm not going to go so far as to say never heard of but it was pretty close yeah. <laughs> I was going into this book from a major publisher as sort of a blank slate. Diving in the deep end. Which is an interesting experience. That's how it was when probably when you, I know when you know when I was a kid, probably mm, when you were a kid, yeah. that you would find a random thing on a, a binner rack and mm-hmm. just kind of pick it up and learn as you go. And the, the cheap boxes, the fifty centers, the quarters, mm-hmm. if if you're lucky enough, those to some extent uh, are the the closest things to to spinner racks uh, that we have where take a shot for less than a buck what's the worst that can happen yeah (laughs) so this story is honor among psychotics by danny fingeroff with art by mike manley and ricardo villagran the issue begins with the punisher taking out some scummy drug and weapons dealers as he's packing up savage steel shows up to put an end to him but the Punisher is too experienced, and he escapes. Chris Powell, a.k.a. Darkhawk, and Cheryl visit a buddy in the hospital before heading to a nearby mall, which is where the Punisher is continuing his war against these scummy arms dealers and against Savage Steel. Darkhawk and the Punisher form an uneasy, shaky alliance, and Savage Steel ends up escaping. So your thoughts on this one, Dave? A lot happened. I'm, 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 yes. Let me start with that. A lot of stuff happened. I was entertained. I enjoyed it. It didn't mm-hmm. change my life, but I enjoyed it generally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, th- I thought the fight scenes were good. And I was not familiar with Savage Steel, even less so than I may have been unfamiliar with Darkhawk. But I like the, the Savage Steel Punisher takedowns. That fight scene, then they get into the mall. That's when Darkhawk shows up. So you got a kind of a three-way fight going <laughs> on, and it's a matter of who's going to team up with who. And some weird things happen with Darkhawk's power. Like I said, stuff happening. Punisher and Darkhawk fighting in a mall. Nothing is more nineties. <laughs> if we only had like a Wolverine cameo, we would be complete <laughs> on your nineties crossover checklist. <laughs> Well, he's technically in the ads if you have the physical copy. That is true. I'm looking at him now, he's right on top of the September coolometer. And Julia <laughs> Roberts was at the top of the coolometer for the record. Eh, hard to argue with that. Goatees at the bottom of the un- – uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> Same here. I'm looking at the bottom of that coolometer, and that's – I don't know. That bottom third, much of that describes me. But anyway, enough about that and how, <laughs> and how uncool Marvel thinks I am. This ending, this two versus one – 
where our bad guy, Savage Steel, actually gets away. That was kind of a surprise. In terms of, you know, picking a book up, you don't expect your hero to fail like that, especially when he's got a pretty big-name guest star. And, and the failure actually goes to help the ongoing story, because this is a kid that had this thrust on him, and it's, he doesn't get a victory here, so he's turning to his girlfriend, Cheryl. He, so it actually is used to further the plot for once. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about the Spider-Man oh, yeah. sort of connection or similarity, but now that you say that, it's, it's pretty clear. There's something about that archetype that works. Even with the Wally West at the, in the 80s. Right. That archetype was taken, and, and it went on to great success. Yeah, the young person working their way into. Well, it's just like any real career. I mean, you you in education and, and you know me and my career, we had to learn our way around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just had to, to swim before you, before you sank. Cross your fingers and learn to swim. <laughs> and there's something compelling about that. You know, comic books have this aspirational aspect to them mm-hmm. of, you know, I can be this super character. But there's also uh, an identification aspect, too. That's what these stories are about. I can, mm-hmm. I can identify and grow and mature. And as, as they say today, we can watch these characters adult. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that means teaming up with the Punisher. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. And this was a book that was new. It was fresh. Put the mm-hmm. Punisher on there and get new eyes on it. And I'm really impressed that it, it went on for as long as it did. 50 mm-hmm. issues for a character that didn't have its roots in early Marvel. That would be considered a, a success at the time mm-hmm. and certainly today. Well, oh, to go 50 it, issues it, today it, would be a miracle. Exactly. <laughs> Especially a new character. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad I read this. Yes. Same here. I, I would say yes. Plop a quarter down on this. Absolutely. There are a lot of books in the cheap bins, maybe with characters you aren't all that familiar with, but sometimes you can grab a winner. Yeah. A definite solid deal. Thanks for joining me again, Dave. I appreciate you covering this one with me. Thanks for having me again. This has been a lot of fun. Next up, we're heading back to the 1980s. Book 97. It's Booster Gold number 8. DC Comics, of course, cover dated September 1986. And joining me again, my real-life buddy, actual neighbor, and now we can say podcast veteran, Terry Colucci. Alan, it's a pleasure to be here again. So last time we talked about the JLE, and you were talking about all your... 80s comic book love where did booster fit into that if anywhere he was actually one of my favorite characters from the time period like you mentioned i was a big fan of justice league america and when they rebooted that he was one of the main characters and so i didn't actually have the issue that we're going to talk about today but i had i had the other issues the team book that he was in and uh, he was such an interesting character for me. And actually, I thought that he was a uh, similar and better version of Marvel's Iron Man. Now, just bear with me, if you will. Now, they say that Iron Man is a futurist, but Booster is actually from the future. 
Okay. First parallel. Second, they can both fly. They've both got a suit that makes them super strong. I mean, Booster's got a force field and Iron Man's just, you know, he's kind of bulletproof. They've both got repulsor rays. They've both got, uh, you know, Iron Man's got Jarvis and Booster has Skeets. I mean, they're, right. they're pretty okay. comparable when you, when you stop and think about it. Uh, he was a great character. He came right. back from the future. And in fact, this issue that we're about to talk about is his origin story. It did make me wonder, what happened the first seven issues? <laughs> well, what we have here is Time Bridge, Chapter 1. By Dan Jurgens, with inks by Mike DiCarlo. And the quick summary is that Legionnaires, Brainiac, Ultra Boy, and Chameleon Boy travel from the 30th century back to the 20th century to bring Booster to justice for his theft of 25th century technology. There will be a math quiz at the end of this. While doing that, the Legionnaires wrongly conclude that Booster is planning to attack the U.S. president, who's giving a speech in Metropolis. But in fact, it's the shape-changing alien Chiller who is planning to kill Ronald Reagan. You've got the Legion, or three of the members from the Legion. Right, right. And not my three favorite members, to be honest with you. Uh, you got Brainiac 5. He's just an alien. He's from a planet full of smart people. So he doesn't stand out on his own planet. He stands out because he's among humans. Same thing with the Durlin. He even talks about it in this issue. He said, everybody from my planet can do what I can do. I'm not special. Why is he in the Legion if he's not special? <laughs> I kind of liked the intricate nature of this plan. You've got Secret Service. You've got a whole lot of security. A plan to kill the president needs to be kind of intricate. So this is, you kill Reagan, you impersonate Bush... You appoint their chosen guy as his VP, then the fake George Bush retires, and their guy is now president. Voila! What could go wrong? It is a nice civics lesson. Talks about the uh, yes. you know the transition of power. So it's educational. It is educational. It's got real people in it, not just the made-up ones. I'm not but, sure what uh, I think about that. Yeah. You know, now we can look at this as 30 years ago. But contemporaneously, that is kind of odd. Over time, uh, DC has inconsistently, yeah. especially with presidents, mm -hmm. I haven't seen them do it with, with leaders of other countries. DC kind of leaned toward made-up towns. You know, Marvel, obviously, you know, opted to, to use real places. Marvel spreads their characters out among so many real-life cities like New York City and, and New York City. And New York City, and then New York City. So, but they did have the West Coast Avengers. You can't forget about them. Bam! There you go. So, so yeah. To, back to the original point. DC kind of shied away from uh, using real places, and in fact, even when they were uh, identifying a Middle Eastern country, even at the height of the Cold War, when we were very much against Iran, Iran tensions were really high. They didn't want to list them. They they invented a country called Karak right. and uh, Bialya. And they had the Queen Bee, which is really kind of interesting if you think about it. They had a female ruler of a Middle Eastern country, which doesn't tend to happen very often. There's a little bit of a formula here. You've got the main character, and you know you can see things from his perspective. And then you've got another super team that you're also, you know, hey, you kind of like these guys. You've seen them. And, and they meet and, well, and they, they fight. got a fight, right? <laughs> they got a fight. You know, Booster's thinking, hey, there's an alien. He's probably attacking the president. And they're saying, hey, there's Carter. He's a 
criminal from the future and we're going to apprehend him and he's trying to kill the president. And that's another thing about Booster. He was a failed professional football mm-hmm. player. Bets on himself to win the game. He's found out. He's ejected out of the sport. At the Space Museum, he discovers all this equipment that he later goes on to steal and then goes back in time. But his motivation is to go back in time and get fame and money. Now, you would think that a guy who has a history in sports would go back and say, hey, maybe I can play sports again. No, not this guy. You would think maybe he would go back in time and say, I know sports. I know who wins all the Super Bowls. And he could just bet on them. But no, not this guy. And he's even got a history of betting on sports. Yeah, so you think that's where he'd go. But no, his motivation when he goes back in time is he's going to become a superhero and get money merchandising himself. I'm a I like that. finance professor. I like this plan. So you would think that he would go back and he would bet on sports and whatnot. But what would that do? He goes back. He starts betting on sports. That's going to change the future. Mm-hmm. That's going to start – creating ripples and waves and then the time police are going to show up and they're going to catch him yeah so he's got to do it organically he's got to show up and be someone that people are like hey who's this guy i really like him and you know he starts later on years later on he starts wearing wearing um patches on his on his uniform you know you got to have some respect for that because that's how he chooses to go and, and that actually becomes a really interesting and recurring plot point in the justice league of america book where he's a member of the team And the relationship that he developed with Blue Beetle, which is really strange because Ted Kord, the Blue Beetle, was a millionaire, billionaire inventor. I mean, he had tons of money, but Booster's still out there, you know, trying to pull off all these get-rich-quick schemes. It provided me with a great amount of amusement over many years. And I like Booster and Skeets. He's got a built-in electronic sidekick. Sidekick, friend, confidant. He's a little bit Robin, he's a little bit Alfred. All rolled into one. Yeah, he is. So overall, are we saying this book is worth a quarter? As I mentioned, I'm not a huge fan of the Legion, but mm-hmm. I'm going to say this one This one skates in at 25 cents. Yeah. Dan Jurgens is a solid pro. Like I say, I like Booster and Skeets, so it's solid. I mean, the only drawback is you're only getting half the story, but you can probably find both of them cheap. Definitely a quarter bid deal. Thanks for be. joining me for this one. Appreciate having you back on. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Next up, we are solidly in the current millennium. Book 98. Necro War number two from Dreamwave, cover dated August 2003. And joining me again for this one, it's independent sci fi expert Ed Moore. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you cover something twice. You are an expert now, buddy. You're, you're marked. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> now, I know that you are a fan of the independence. Do you know anything about Dreamwave? Transformers, and I believe they did have the G.I. Joe license uh, for a little while oh, as well. Okay. Okay. But I know more the creator of this book, Pat Lee. In some sword and sorcery 
fantasy stuff that he did called um, give me a sec. Warlands was the overarching world, and then there were several series with that name, and then there were others. There was about six that he had going through the early to middle 80s, and then they all just fell away like Pat Lee did, and I believe like Dreamwave did. They're, they're still out there now. I think their output is greatly reduced at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, the story for this issue, for which I could find no title, was written and developed by Simon Furman, with art by Addie Granoff. As you said, Ed Necrobor was created by Pat Lee. And aboard a Arrowhead transporter in deep space, five casualties of war awake to a new and drastically altered reality. What happened to them on the Arch 2 Ultima? Are they alive or something else again? One thing is for certain, as the dark matter infestation known as the progeny spreads like wildfire across the universe, Damien Arnaz and Eben Squad may be the only force capable of stopping its advance. If, that is, the progeny doesn't finish what it started first. Old school sci-fi on this one, Ed. What'd you think? Yes, a very old school sci-fi. Um, first off, I will say this is a, a very much a, a personal preference, but the digital art style that Mr. Granoff uses in this mm-hmm. book, I, I am not a fan of. Not because it, it's not good. Um, to be honest, I have no idea if it's good or not. <laughs> right. I, I am a child of the 16-color newsprint 80s, <laughs> pen and ink. Uh, you know, that's – That is the, comic books to you. The farther afield you get from that, the more I kind of uh, – as I look. And, and this is just – I personally don't have an appreciation for this art style. I give um, it a little bit of a pass because it is sci-fi. You know, it's telling a different type of story, so I can say, okay, maybe a different type of art. Maybe there's a fit. Maybe there's a connection there. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. As far as the story, being that this was the second issue of a – I don't believe it told us – a multi-issue story. I believe it's a three-parter, so it, it, it is literally the middle of a three-parter. There was no lead-in. You jumped right into the fire and ran. And so it it took me a little bit to catch up as much as I could just based on what this issue had. By the time it ended, I still had questions, and I thought, well, my preference is that style storytelling I'm not the biggest fan of. You know, I I, I like the sci-fi. I like the world, I think. But as you said, reading part two of a three-parter, in terms of trying to make sense of it, is pretty tough. And we've run into that a number of times here on on this episode, going through these grab bags. You'd always rather have issue one or three than two. <laughs> right. <laughs> in terms of uh, reading a miniseries, you know, pulling one issue at random. The story itself, I thought, was, was um, entertaining. You know, mm-hmm. what, what I could uh, piece together and, and where I assume it's going to be going. The rebirth of or a reborn hero mm-hmm. 
that that's always something that is is interesting to me, and I I know I have consumed it in television shows and movies <laughs> right, and, right. and prose. So that type of story I am interested in. So that mm-hmm. that was cool to have. And then we mentioned the that the publisher has a, a heavy Transformers connection, or did in, at this time, and this writer Simon Furman, I know that he's very well thought of among fans of Transformers. He's pretty much the the number one Transformers writer and has been for a couple of decades. Oh, okay. So okay. this, I think, was a chance for him to spread his wings and do something a little bit differently as well. There is a similarity or two, I guess, with a, uh, a Transformer kind of uh, high concept here. Critical question. On its own, as a standalone, Necro War number two. Is it worth a quarter? <sighs> I'm with you on that heavy sigh, brother. For, for me, unfortunately, I have to say no. It, it, it's, it's not worth a quarter. You know, if I saw one, two, and three for 75 cents total, maybe. I'd like to see how the story started and ended. But just picking this up at random out of the bin, it's a little too confusing to me. And like you said, it's certainly a non-traditional comic book art style. So I think it falls just below the threshold. That just hurts to say that, you know. But it is what it is. They they can't all be home runs. Once a year, I think on the, on the store anniversary, you know, the LCS that I go to has a big sale and even drops the quarter bins to 10 cents. Oh. And I still leave some behind. <laughs> you know it, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, am I that picky? Really? <laughs> Evidently, I am. Yes. So discerning, you won't even get it for a dime. <laughs> How about yeah. That? You could walk in and take all, you know, six boxes for, you know, 20 bucks or something. <laughs> work out to if you counted them all out. But nope, nope, I'm leaving some of these. Don't even meet that criteria. <laughs> we have to take that responsibility seriously, Ed. Sometimes books fall short. So again... Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you bringing those independent sensibilities to this one. Yes, sir. I enjoyed it, and I, uh, I had a good time talking about Necro War with you. Next up, it's a reboot from the very recent past. Book 99 is Jughead number one. Archie Comics, cover dated November 2015. And last time I talked to this guest, she was a podcast newbie. But now we're talking to veteran podcast guest, Laurel Phillips, Mountain Flower. Welcome back. Thank you for having me again. I'm glad to be the penultimate chapter. How about that? So were you a reader of Archie books in particular when you were a kid? I have a random Reggie and me issue that I have absolutely <laughs> no idea where it came from. Garage sale, maybe. Right, yep. <laughs> I have a handful of like Little Lulu and Beetle Bailey and Donald Duck that my dad got me like one time when I was a kid. And that's it. And then I have a random Reggie and me and a random Marvel Star Wars. 
I tell you, though, if you can find some old Archies, even if they're falling apart in the quarter bin, they tend to be kind of worth it. I, oh, really? I, I've really enjoyed the rediscovering some of those some of those old books. But where were you on the new look Archie from the past few years? Was it something you paid attention to? Did you not care about it? Well, I knew it was coming, so I went ahead and got the first trade out of the library, and at least gave it a little bit of a look. It's much more intense because they were looking so much more real. So it you know ratches it up the intensity of them the drama, where the drama is more out front as a driving driving element. They, they still have their version of escapades. That was really clever how they worked that in without making it ridiculous. Mm, mm-hmm. But yeah, that intensity is there, and I thought, ooh, I don't know if this is fun or if I'm going to be you know on the fence all the time wondering which way is this going to fall. Right. Well, I was excited. I'm I'm a fan of Archie and. Whatever brings the crew to popular prominence, though we're not going to mention the Riverdale TV show right now. I'm up for it, so. It was fun. I have to, the old Archie books are fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's check out this new one. Okay. This story, which did not have any other title that I could find other than Jughead, was written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Erica Henderson. And in it, Principal Stanger is introduced as Weatherby's replacement. And his first move is to replace the food in the cafeteria with high-nutrition gruel. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Jughead imagines that he is fighting dragons for hamburgers before realizing that he can actually make hamburgers in home ec class. Who knew? But the new principal is not going to like his plan. So what did we think of this one? Well... Um, I hate to be negative, but this art, yeah, this art really, they're trying to do something stylized. I don't know what it is, but it's not to my taste. The faces are kind of distorted a little, and the color's a little flat. The characters look a little flat. Jughead comes off a little selfish. He's not interested in what's going around on around him until it affects his food and that seems to be his only motivating factor for living. But then I thought, well, if they're trying to be realistic, maybe this is somewhere to grow from. And maybe we're going to move forward in the series and he can grow, gives him a place to start. You definitely know he and the principal are definitely going to have yeah. problems. <laughs> and this whole sort of premise that he didn't know where hamburgers came from? Yeah. He didn't that was... think Pop Tate was a magician? Well, and Down you at know, the chocolate that... shop? I mean, how would... There were six pages of Game of Jones, which is that fantasy segment where he yeah. was hunting the burger. I understand it's sort of a daydream, but, you know, I've never been a teenage boy. Maybe this is what teenage boys do. Food just appears because, you know, mom makes food and it appears. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I will mention that the uh, copy that I have, the actual uh, physical copy of uh, Jughead 1, I think this was true of most of the Archie books had a reprint story, in this case from 1949, Jughead Number 1. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, so you did get a little bit of that compare and contrast. But, uh, yeah. I guess so, but it, it was not the stereotypical, lazy, only-about-food Jughead that we've come to know and love over the years. The guest has the honors. Jughead well, Number 1 from 2015. This is, may surprise you. Uh-oh. But I say, yes, it's worth the quarter. Okay. Because 
it's a number one, which is always a nice jumping on point. There you go. And just because I don't like the art doesn't mean somebody else might not like it. They may think this is, you know, okay. They might like it. So I would say if you found this floating around, you know, you can't always open the package to see what the art looks like. Right. What the hey, give it a try. You know, you might like it. I don't want my my negativity to come all the way across and rain on everybody's parade. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you. Because I thought it was it was a fun book. It had a few laughs in it, and an ongoing story that we know. There's going to be some drama coming up. Mm-hmm, exactly. I, I think I did sort of want to see what happens next. So, by definition, for me, that's a success. Yes, I'll agree with that. Well spent. So for me, definitely worth a quarter. For Laurel, barely, but still <laughs> worth a quarter. I would say so. <laughs> Well, thanks again. It was great to talk to you again. Well, thank you for having me. You got one more to go. We can do it. (laughs) Well, thank you again. And last up, finally, a talking animal book, albeit not a very funny one. Book 100 is Cerebus 106, from Aardvark Vanaheim, cover date of January 1988. And as soon as I saw this book in one of the grab bags, there was one person I wanted to at least float this issue by to see if they were interested. And they agreed. And so third time is the charm. It's Luke Giaconetti. Thank you very much for having me back on for a third time. I am a huge fan of Dave Sim and a huge fan of Cerebus, so I jumped at the chance to do that. How often do you get to do such a well-regarded talking animal book? It is funny, real quick, that you, you did say not a not very funny talking animal. For those who don't know, Cerebus, originally titled Cerebus the Yardvark, is so named because the book started out as a parody Mm-hmm. of Conan the Barbarian. Right. And so those the early ones are actually quite funny. And and there is quite a lot of humor in the series. It's just not what you would expect from a talking aardvark, necessarily. <laughs> it's and very sophisticated political humor most of the time. I see that it has actually become known as the Cerebus effect. Mm-hmm. You know, starting yep. something light and humorous. And as it goes along, it gets more and more serious and more serious and more in-depth. And oh. There was a, a book Sim did much later after this, Glamourpuss. And Glamourpuss mm-hmm. started out as being like a satire of fashion magazines and a history of the photorealistic style of cartooning. There is a promotional poster for Glamourpuss, which I have, and it was a <laughs> cover with Glamourpuss with her eyes crossed, and it said, get it now at the, quote, earlier, funnier ones stage. A little self-awareness goes a long way in mm-hmm. my book. For me, I do have a few miscellaneous issues of Cerebus somewhere in the basement. But after reading this specific issue, this increases my total Cerebus reading to one issue. <laughs> well, so how about it, you, Luke? For, I actually own the entire run of Cerebus in the, the big phone book the phone collections. It's, it's a little sad because I got all of them for a dollar a piece. Wow. <laughs> 
you I were mean, my hero. And I came back with a couple of my friends back to the house, and I've got a box with all these Cerebus foams. And my wife is like, how much did you spend? I'm like, you see all this? 15 bucks. She's like, okay, I okay. can't really argue with that. <laughs> What's funny is that I was introduced to Cerebus not through Cerebus, but Cerebus actually appeared in an issue of Spawn. That's right. In the 90s. Back in which the very early days. So eight, 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 nine, ten, eleven. Alan Moore, eight, Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. yep. Dave Sim, and Frank Miller. And so Spawn number 10, it's a standalone story with Cerebus escorting Spawn through hell, with hell here being a metaphor for working for corporate comics. Yes. Dave Sim was never an image creator. He always did his own stuff at Aardvark Van Eim, but he was one of their advisors and one of their very strong supporters. I've read the first two, what Sim calls novels. The first volume, which I said is kind of the, you know, Cerberus, the Aardvark, as Cohen and the Barbarian stuff. And then the, uh, the second volume, which is called High Society, which mm-hmm. starts out kind of making fun of high-class society, but by the end of it is actually a political satire about a Canadian government. Now, this is just past the one-third mark, uh, this issue, 106. And it was before he gets into the most controversial aspects mm-hmm. of the series. So at this point, he was still the self-pub superstar. Yep. And creator rights advocate. That doesn't come out until um, the infamous Tangent essay, yes. mm-hmm. which was, I want to say, right at the beginning of 2001. Tangent was Sim's very long and detailed treatise on his opinions on gender relations, which got him in a lot of hot water with a right. lot of people. And his career has never really recovered from that. Mm-hmm. I've always said that one of Sim's problems is that he's 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 a very well spoken and well uh, he, he expresses himself very <laughs> right. well. Very so clearly. the problem is is you know whatever your opinion is, he expresses it so well that he just infuriates people. I think <laughs> so if he was if he was just ranting and raving like some guy on on Facebook, nobody give him a second thought. But he presents a very a very well organized and structured argument. So you kind of <laughs> you're like, well, well, crap, damn it, you know. So well, let's let's take a shot. Talking mm-hmm. about this specific issue. Uh, this is called Greatness mm-hmm. Among Flies by Dave Sim and Gerhardt. This is issue two of the two issue storyline, Ascension's End. It's also issue five of the five issue book, The Final Ascension. And as you said, it's issue 55 of the 60 issue novel, Church and State. You know, Cerebus is not necessarily a book where the plot is the most important thing, but Just to say broadly what happened in this issue, we have a combined being of the artist, something, and woman thing, and that is holding Cerebus in one hand. This being continues to grow and grow and grow. Uh, It's on a tower. The tower is growing towards the moon. The artist babbles on about consequences and sacrifice and other messianic concepts. And Cerebus takes the opportunity to jump into the tower to hide. With Cerebus out of the picture, these three other beings channel their efforts to making a spheroid thing, and they seem to float off into the void of space. The tower snaps off, Cerebus emerges, it continues to grow so tall that it just about reaches the moon. So what happened yep. in this issue, Luke, or does not, not really matter? 
<laughs> without the context, it's hard to say. Yes. I mean, from a plot standpoint, this is there's there's really not much else you can say. In fact, the the artist and something and woman things. The first thing that they say is, as you may have noticed, I have just now grown to nearly two thirds of my ultimate godlike size. <laughs> you know, put that in a different book, and that could have been Jack Kirby writing that. You <laughs> know, true. so that's true. One of the things that I've always liked about Dave Sims' art style is that he could draw some very realistic people. But here on Cerebus, his stuff always has an edge of cartoonishness to it. Mm -hmm. It never quite gets away from the cartooniness. Um, The way that the book is laid out after the opening splash page is that every page is divided. And we get to see our triple being, our deity, if you will. Mm -hmm in a large panel, and then Cerebus in a very small panel. And the panels get bigger and smaller depending on what the deity is doing to Cerebus. When right. he's, you see very early he's gripping him very tightly in his hand to talk to him, and you see Cerebus wincing in pain. And the amount of India ink that went into oh, this book wow. is amazing. Cerebus is supposed to be a shade of gray, both literally and figuratively. And so he is, he is colored exclusively with very small bende dots. And they are black and white. Mm-hmm. And then depending on their density, they appear different shades of gray to the eye. Yeah. All I could think of with this, with this tower growing ever taller and ever taller, and the being responsible for it getting theirs when the tower breaks, was the Tower of Babel. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, that the you know, Babel wanted to, to reach the, the heavens, and they built this great tower, and ultimately it, it collapsed. But here they do, in fact, reach the literal heavens the moon and then Cerebus falling off the tower and, and orbiting the moon in the last shot. And that moon mm-hmm. looks so great. It, it is undeniably beautiful. And I did want to talk just a second about the sort of interesting division of labor. Mm-hmm. That obviously Sim is the writer, and I guess he draws the foreground characters. He basically draws Cerebus and whatever action he's doing. And what Gerhard does is the backgrounds. Yes. So it's not penciling and inking like we traditionally think, or layouts and embellishing. Because this is a pretty unusual, perhaps unique, division of labor between the two artists. Sim has said that he was it was taking him so long to draw issues that he was falling behind. Right. And so one of the reasons he brought in Gerhard was specifically to do the backgrounds, because Gerhard was very good at doing the detailed backgrounds that Sim does on the earlier parts of the book. But it, it gave him more time to do the figure work. And do right. the characters. And, and his characters, again, are very expressive, even though, again, they're, they're cartoony. By the time Gerhard came on, according to Sim, and again, you can take this with a grain of salt, he had written out all 300 issues of Cerebus. I, I don't know to what level, but he says he had the entire story plotted out, ready to go for all 300 issues of Cerebus. And the agreement was that if Gerhard was to die before issue 300, Sim would publish all the issues of Cerebus without any backgrounds. He would just Mm. draw the foregrounds. Uh And on the other side of the coin, if Sim was to die before Cerebus was to come out, they would not be any any characters or words. It would just be Gerhard's backgrounds. (laughs) And the ultimate version of this, if both Sim and Gerhard were to die, he was arranged in his will to publish up to issue 300 of blank pages. <laughs> because Sim said Cerebus would be 300 issues, and 300 issues it shall be. <laughs> but um, take, it, take it on its own. This is, this is kind of an interesting little character study on this, this uh, 
I hate, I don't want to use the word Trinity, but that's clearly what Sim is making fun of here. You know, one head looks kind of like man thing. I'm trying to place where I know the other monstrous head from. And then the artist head looks like a mix kind of of Jesus Christ and a Rastafarian. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the idea, I guess, of a, a mortal declaring himself a deity and, you know, raising his great tower into the heavens only to, you know, have his own hubris undo him when the tower breaks and he falls off. You know, Sim's uh, stance on religion has varied wildly over the years. It's not anything real deep. I mean, it, it was amusing to read this and because this guy's just talking and talking and then it, it all just kind of falls apart for him in one right. fell swoop. But like I said, my, my main takeaway was just how pretty this book was from a uh, – I'm a big fan of black and white comics and of, of mm-hmm. large patches done with ink and paint. And it, it just looks so nice. But it's just visually, I just, I just really, really appreciate and enjoy it. So, you talk about the, uh, you know, the India ink, the, the black backgrounds, and we are in space. Mm-hmm. So a black right. background is fitting. But one of the keys to me is that it's not a black background. It's a black background with some stars. Every yeah. panel has maybe as few as two or three or four dots of light in it at, in various places. And, and in some cases, uh, maybe a couple of dozen but they are usually pretty small pinpricks of light yeah as you would see perhaps in the atmosphere approaching the moon Mm -hmm. and that's just a crazy level of detail cerebus's face in this book is great (laughs) page six i think here six or seven where the deity is throwing him up and catching him Mm-hmm. And right in the middle of the bottom of that, we see his head impacting and we see his teeth gritting on the side mm-hmm. and the thud line. And then the next one, his his eyes are all loopy and he's got, you know, he's got the stars mm-hmm. appearing around him like a like a Warner Brothers cartoon. And then the next one, you see his ears pinned back and his little tuft of hair flying back as he's being lifted back up. So it, it, there's just great facial expressions all throughout this because Cerebus doesn't have any dialogue. Right. This entire story, mm-hmm. but he expresses quite a lot for the fact, even though he doesn't say anything. And Cerebus usually doesn't talk too much, but he does talk usually to make some wry comment about things. Now, I don't know if you would have this in your version of this, but the notes on the inside cover and the letters pages, you know, eventually some of those notes and some of his responses to letters would add to the, the controversial reputation. Those are not collected in the phone books. Yeah, no. but, but, but we're still early enough that it's really interesting to see just the nature of the community mm-hmm. that, that had gathered here uh, you know, well before the Internet would facilitate that type of community. That old-style you know, letter page mm-hmm. uh, driven type of fandom. And yeah, there, and, there are and, examples and... of uh, reader art that's been created. They're obviously longer conversations that we're getting bits and pieces of. Yeah. You know, obviously there there are threads that have run through multiple issues at this point. And the thing with Sim is that he is very much a Luddite. He mm. does not like technology about the most uh, advanced thing he'll use as a fax machine. Even then, he maintained an active letters page and would write back and forth. Again, whatever you agree with him or disagree with him, one, one of the things that, that I personally um was disappointed about was the the changing attitude towards his work because of his controversial statements mm-hmm. and you know we get people that now is like well sim is he's a hack he never really did anything service is overrated it's like okay look 
and, and I know this word, people on the internet hate it. I'm going to use it anyway. Irregardless what you think <laughs> of Dave Sim as a person, I think the work speaks for itself, his work as an artist and his work as a, as a writer of fiction and of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. You know, Judenhaus, which was a study of uh, you know, anti-Semitism, and, um, and you know, Judenhaus is a German word for a term about the hatred of Jews. And Glamourpus, again, half of it was a satire, but the other half was a very serious examination of art history. And eventually the, you know, the, the real life history of Alex Raymond. So, you know, the stuff that he's interested in, he, he's very good at doing it. And I don't think it's fair. You know, we see it nowadays where it's like, well, we can't like this person because of this. It's like, well, if you like them because they're of, of a role they played in a film or how well they play a sport, that's fine. They don't have to be a great person. Otherwise, you don't have to agree with everything they do to be a fan of their work. To me, it's a bit disingenuous to dismiss Sim's work just because we don't like Dave Sim as a person, mm-hmm. whether you do or, or, or not. To me, it's like, you know, Cerebus, I think, deserves its reputation as being, you know, a, a seminal work because it is the only one of its kind. It's the only you know, 300 issue story that has the same creative team. You know, it mm-hmm. has one writer telling this whole story. Nothing else has ever come close to that. And frankly, I don't think anything ever will. Just not the nature of the industry anymore. Uh-huh. I'll always appreciate Dave Sims' work. There are some some points that political and you know social points on for that Dave Sim has made that I think are on point. And then there are some he comes out with is like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but again, that doesn't that doesn't take away from how much I enjoy his work as a comics artist. And I, I again, even without any context, it was fun just to break out a random issue with Cerebus and and cover it. Um, and read it because, like I said, this is so far ahead of where I'm at that I've got no context at all, but it was fun just to see it. <laughs> yeah, over on uh, Shortbox Showcase, Em and I have talked more than once about separating the creator from the creation mm-hmm. and, and how sort of individually how we work that through. Maybe the, the current day version of Dave Sim might be Frank Miller. Yeah. Where dislike of what he's doing currently has somehow, in some people's minds, retroactively made Daredevil and Dark Knight Returns, etc., 300 not-good works, mm-hmm. which I just think is disingenuous. I agree, especially when you consider not only the works themselves, but the derivative works of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, without Frank Miller's Daredevil, there is no Netflix Daredevil. Without Frank Miller's Daredevil, Daredevil gets canceled at some point in the 80s and is forgotten about. Without The Dark Knight, Batman, as we know him, does not exist today. Uh You know, again, whether you like that or not, to me, it's a simple fact. Unfortunately, The Dark Knight Returns came along and then suddenly DC was chasing it for for decades. Oh, yeah. I will repeat myself from, from Short Box Showcase, and that's those successful examples of dark and gritty were successful because they were dark and gritty and had substance. Right. And I think the lesson became was that dark and gritty was the key, mm-hmm. not that quality. Yeah. <laughs> not that content, not that substance was the key. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that, you know, I will say that, you know, you talk about the, the term mature readers nowadays is synonymous with, uh, you know, hanky panky stuff in your mm-hmm. comic. But I would classify, especially as we get later on, Cerebus is definitely a mature reader's book because it deals with themes about politics and religion and gender roles and, you know, gets into all this stuff. That's a mature topic. Right. Heavy stuff. Right. Now, considering you paid a buck each for your phone books, Mm -hmm. this is a serious question. 
Cerebus 106, is it worth a quarter? I would say yes, just because of how how much I, I like the art. But, you know, if you're not into black and white comics, you're not into indie comics, you probably can let this one go. There's yeah. not... Not any great, any great shake story. It's not anything that's a done, done in one that's going to blow your socks off. I would say it really depends on what your stance on black and white indie books is. If you're going to pick up a black and white indie book and go, ooh, yes, 25 cents, absolutely. If you're going to pick up a black and white indie book and go, ugh, then no, don't worry about it. You're good. <laughs> Very solid analysis there, Luke. Glad to be of service. Uh, thanks for joining me again on episode 100. Always good to have you on. It's been great. I, I've always liked about the Quarterman Podcast. It truly is random. You have no idea what you're going to get. Anytime you get any other weird, obscure nonsense, I'll gladly help you out with that if I can. Well, thank you, Luke. Uh, thank you, Professor. And that wraps up my coverage of 10 issues of comics I got from Grab Bags, bringing part 6 of episode 100 to a close, which also brings episode 100 itself to a close. I want to thank again everyone who joined me for this, for part 6 of episode 100, to review, to let you know where you can find their work online. Those guests were Ben Avery of Welcome to Level 7, The Comic Book Time Machine, and Strangers and Aliens. Podcasting's Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box and from Crisis to Crisis. Terry Colucci, who lives about four miles from me, uh, that way. David Ace Gutierrez, freelance writer, contributor at Emmys.com, frequent guest, on the Film and Water podcast and dedicated Hoovian. Luke Giaconetti of Get Back to the Wrestling, Earth Destruction Directive, and The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, all of which are at the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Ed Moore of Teal Productions, part of the Deliberate Noise Network and Teal Productions on Twitter. Laurel Phillips, from the excellent and supportive Twitter feed, MTNFLWR1. And J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave. He hosts, and hopefully will for a good long time, Dave's Daredevil podcast, which can be found, you know where, at Two True Freaks. Thanks, everyone. And that applies to all the guests who've appeared on all parts of this episode, which I think was 46 different people. And even at that, there were people I wish I could have had on the show, on the episode. Schedules and life and other things conspired for that not to happen, and there just wasn't enough room for everyone I wanted to ask. But I do want to say that even though I wasn't able to ask everyone onto the episode that it would have been nice to have had, everyone that I did ask accepted and appeared here. And I thank every guest for their patience. Some segments for this were recorded just over a year before this final part is being released. 
one of the things I'm most proud of, of how this turned out, was the variety of types of guests that I was able to, to have on here. Lots from Two True Freaks, some from Deliberate Noise and the Fire and Water podcast, and of course, the late lamented Ultraverse podcast network. And I was able to snag both hosts of Dorkness to Light, and those are tough gets, believe me. We went to foreign lands to find guests. Scotland, Ireland, Australia, Canada, Florida. We had longtime podcasting veterans. We had people who've recently started podcasting. Some folks who hadn't podcasted for a while. And there were at least three people who made their podcasting debuts right here on episode 100. And I appreciate all of the guests saying what a nice thing it was for me to invite them on the show. But the nice thing was all of them appearing on the show. That was the gift, the gift to me. And as I said back in part one, there are three particular podcasters and podcasts that I, let's go with borrowed from, and putting together the particulars for this. The idea of going through grab bags was inspired by Ben Avery from the comic book Time Machine. Having a podcast with a rotating band of guests. Well, that was from Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast. And regularly having multiple guests on each episode. Well, that came from Chad Bokelman's show on long-term hiatus. But, fingers crossed, we'll come back someday. The Action Comics Weekly podcast. And everyone who downloaded and listened to any or all of these two-hour-long thingamajigs Thank you. Next episode, in that grand comic book tradition, we return the podcast to legacy numbering. So join me next time for episode 107, when we'll be looking at Strange Adventures 243 from DC Comics, cover dated August, September 1973. And stay tuned to the episode, because after the outro we will engage in a grand podcasting tradition, that of bloopers and outtakes. Because as long as these episodes ended up being, believe me, there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. And you'll get to hear just a little bit of that. If you have any questions or comments about any of the issues we've talked about, any of the parts of this episode, or the podcast in general feel free to contact me. Until the next regular-sized episode, I know, it's about time. I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Music in episode 100, part 6, was composed by one of my favorite non-Wagner composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. The piece in this episode was a selection from his Piano Sonata No. 2 in B-flat minor, performed by the Turkish pianist, pronounced to the best of my ability, Idel Bure. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts 
Uncovering the Bronze Age, and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. How, have you, how are you doing? Good, good, good. This is the first uh, episode 100 record. So. Okay, cool. So um, I set the tone. Exactly. My best friend, Rob Kelly. I don't know if you know this, and he keeps this very close to the vest, but he attended the Joe Kubert School. Art. Really? Yeah, I don't... Have, have you have you ever heard him talk about it? On no. anything? Yeah, it's really <laughs> rare that he... Such a, yeah. so he keeps it very close. I don't even know... You know what? I might even be violating a trust by revealing this. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy in the room that enjoys the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie. There are some very interesting similarities between that movie and this comic. It's not like I'm listening to Brian Adams in the background as I'm as I'm <laughs> reading this book, but you know the similarities are not to be ignored. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. A lot of guests, a lot of books, short segments. Yeah, short and hard to ed- edit except, that stuff. Except for Shag, I don't know how I'm going to shut him up, but. Tom it's did pretty the, well. Um, he can be a little long-winded just between us, but he did pretty well. Oh, Tom. You know what I've started employing for Tom? It's the um, – you go to truncate silence. I could see uh, that. He just, yeah, I've no, I've gotten used to him talking more. He does like to pause I, for dramatic effect. effect, yes. Yeah, he's like that guy on Star Trek. We say that in love. We say oh, that absolutely, yeah. Now, if you don't introduce me as Iowa's Joe Crawford, oh, you absolutely. are gonna you're gonna make absolutely. Nicholas Prom very sad. <laughs> I've got it right there in the script, baby. Oh, good deal. Right there. Alright. Much like Shag, my only appreciation for Phantom Girl wasn't because she was a well written character. It was all she just sort of she just possessed a lot of the physical characteristics that I find attractive in a woman. As Shag would say, she's adequately attractive. Yes. She 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 makes yeah yeah she makes the cut for him. Each episode's been a joy because it's like oh here comes someone else I like oh somebody else I like Damn. you know and then you get someone new who I've never heard like um right was it Joe Crawford I think right yep mm-hmm. yeah Joe yeah Joe Crawford who I've heard of on your show you say his name a lot did you uh, meet Laurel well Laurel I actually she met was, her face to face yeah she uh, she she did a segment I that know might, that might not be I, I be honest I can't remember what's aired and what hasn't aired. <laughs> No, the, the Laurel one came out already. Okay. In fact, okay. um, I tagged you and her on Twitter. Oh, that's right. That's telling right. her yeah, what a great right. job. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because right. uh, she is so nice. Yeah, I mean, she's we only got met... one coming up too. Yeah. Say that again. We, we did two, so she's got another one coming up. Oh, fantastic! That's awesome, man. Cool. And then your and... buddy who did JLE, I really liked his take on yeah, it. Yeah, that was fun. If I ever come across the rest of this in a twenty-five cent bin, ah, I'd probably pick it up. Although I can never find twenty-five cent bins in the state of Florida. <laughs> Jealous much, Doctor Bill? Yeah, I gotta wait till there's the dollar specials at Yancey Street, but because I I refuse to pay full price for new comics anymore. Absolutely, I, I won't do it. Four ninety nine, forget it. I'll pay a dollar for a five dollar or three dollar book. <laughs> so you're on early just because you can't wait to talk about this, or you want to start forgetting it as soon as possible? This was more just I always want to make sure that my connections are working, so I figured I just got off the Skype with I was Joe Crawford. He says hello.
Oh, excellent. <laughs> this is number 90 for me, so the end is nigh. It's really been great to listen to, I have to tell you. It's That's been fun. so much fun. You know, it's always, I've seen mystery packs at my comic book store, like buy this, you know, shopping bag, it'll have 80 comics, and I've always been leery. Now, now you know why. <laughs> that instinct. Maybe, maybe there was something to that. No, no, no. Some of these have been surprisingly fun. Yeah, it's been a very interesting mix to listen to, I have to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the people you feel sorry for are like the people who do like Millennium or yeah. Genesis. I mean, those <laughs> I mean, talk about suckers. I mean, how do they? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, exactly. <sighs> sorry about that, Doctor. You know, I was thinking about the last time I came on your show. There was a stink bug in my apartment. Remember? And I asked you to, like, pause the recording so I could go and capture said stink bug. And you were, like, screaming at me, don't (laughs) squish it, don't squish it. And I was like, I'm not going to. And I put it outside. And then I come to find that you kept all that in the recording. You've got, like, some sort of orchestral music swelling over it and everything. So, boy, memories. But I guess I decided to come back. That sounds so unlike me. Oh, sure. Do you have me confused with Tom Panarese, or even worse, the Irrefutable Shag? <laughs> irrefutable? Wait, isn't that a positive term? I meant irreconcilable. Irreconcilable, man. I, I like to call him Shagalicious. Oh, well, now, hey, now. <laughs> this is a kid show. Yeah, I gotcha. Well, uh, yeah, I've watched The Brady Bunch. I've watched um, <laughs> Happy Days. I've watched Good Times. I've watched many of your American shows. Um, Australia sort of got the top American shows and the top British shows, and we sort of had the we were the perfect bad. intersection of that. That's not bad. And then we, yeah, and then we had our fairly terrible local shows as well to watch. <laughs> so. As I was growing up, we didn't have many channels, but you know, I could always, you know, watch these classic shows like Hogan's Heroes, all that sort of stuff. Get Smart, uh, Thunderbirds. Yeah, it, it was all on. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the movie Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. Have you seen the movie Cobra with Sylvester Stallone? I mean, a Golden not, Globe is classic. I mean, not this week, but of course. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know you have that on the. Uh, in, that's in the rotation, right? At Middleton Household. I'm trying to slow down because I do have a tendency to get overexcited. So. Oh well, that was me. I listened to my my one episode. I guess slow down, man. Slow down. Oh, I have a question. You know, uh, you know Frank Diablo Frank. Yes, he talks well, fast. He yeah, but did, does he actually turn up the speed? Does he sort of maybe one and a half the speed up or something? I don't know. I had not considered that. But I wouldn't put it past him. But enough about money. Hey, never, never. <laughs> well, that's your—that's how you make your money. That's right. <laughs> I, I appreciate you doing this, even though this is probably six or eight months away from hitting the airwaves. But if I had planning skills like that, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in. I'd go back <laughs> See, in time and. Go. You know what? And going back in time, I wouldn't even give myself a winning lottery ticket. I'd say, hey, dummy, all this money that you spent on comic books and CDs and video games, don't spend it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I I'm not hear looking, you. I'm not looking to be a rich man, just a stable man. <laughs> Let me do one quick thing. Hold on one second. No problem. 
I'm actually going to grab my cell phone just in case that was someone trying to actually call me. That actually may have been my wife. Oh. So I had a I had a missed call and then on the cell phone and then you know three uh, on the home phone in a row. So probably but should tell her just Skype you. I, exactly. Wait a minute. <laughs> Almost every Halloween. I listened to Emily's uh, episode on the Comics Code. Mm, I'm, I, I'm you really did glad. You very well on that one. Well, please, please pass along to her that that is still one of the single best podcasts I've ever listened to. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm really flattered that I got to be on that. <laughs> well, speaking of flattered, you're flattered to be here too. So let's get to this. Well, if I can't get Emily, I guess you'll. Second best. <laughs>